Our gospel lesson begins today with the words, on that day. Does that elicit a question for you? Which day? What day? Imagine if you were greeting your friend and you said, hi, how are you? And they said, I'm fine, how are you? You said, I'm fine, what's been happening? And they said, well, after that, I got into the car and drove away. Wouldn't you say, hey, hey, whoa, whoa, wait. There is a key part missing here. Our gospel lesson prompts us to notice, to ask the same question. On that day, it starts, and we say, on what day? We know a little bit about Jesus from hearing these stories read Sunday after Sunday, and maybe from your own studies as well. What happened on that day? Was Jesus healing people? Was he being interrogated by religious authorities? Was he teaching? And so we're sent back to the scriptures. I'm sorry that you don't have a Bible in your pew so that you could look with me. Uh, I brought one to help us out here this morning. I particularly like this Bible. It fits so well in my hands. I encourage you, if you don't have a Bible, go to the bookstore and try them on. Pick out the one that feels good in your hands so that you pick it up a lot. When we look at this gospel lesson, we see that it starts in verse 35 of chapter 4. And so we can piece by piece go back and see where does the story actually begin. And it very handily begins at the beginning of the fourth chapter. It says, again he began to teach beside the sea. Oh, that day he taught them, the crowds that came, they wanted to hear what he had to say. And he taught them in parables. In this particular, on this particular day, he taught them the parable of the sower who goes out and scatters seed. Some of it falls on the path, and the birds come and snatch it away. Some of it falls on rocky soil, and those, those plants sprout right up, but the soil is so shallow that they wither under the sun and they die. Some seeds are scattered in the thorns, and they do grow up, but the thorns choke them, and they die. And some seed is scattered on good earth, and they grow up and are fruitful. This is the story he told to the multitudes. I think it's fascinating that Jesus used parables to teach. There were other options, of course, that he could have used, but none of them are so well suited to a crowd of thousands. He could have used rhetoric, but that doesn't work very well when you have people of various education and from various communities. He could have used logic, but that also would be a challenge when thousands of people are listening. So he used parables. And he would take the disciples aside after he was done teaching in parables and he would explain to them what happened in that story. He would break it open for his band of 12 because there in the intimacy of that dialogue, he could address their questions. He could help them as they sought to understand what it was he was teaching in the story. A benefit of a story is that it also can be just good just as a story. I'm sure there were people that came to hear Jesus because he was just a good storyteller. And they would go home and they would tell the story again because it was just a good story. Maybe to their children, maybe they would just remember it because it was nice to have a story. But there were others who would talk about it with one another. And perhaps it would break open for them in a new way and they would start to say, wait, do you think he meant... Or maybe they might say to the other one, 
You know what? This is kind of like that other story he told, and that seems so obvious. Could there be a parallel between these two? Jesus trusted that the story would stand on its own and be fine as is, but those who had ears to hear would listen, and they would start to pick it apart and dialogue with one another about what it was that Jesus was teaching. We know that this is true even from some of the stories in our scripture, such as in John's Gospel when Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night because he has a question. He's been listening to Jesus and watching Jesus, and now he wants to unpack what he's been witnessing. In Mark's Gospel, there's a story of a rich young man who comes to Jesus. He also has been noticing, he calls Jesus the good teacher. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, I have done this. And Jesus then looks on him with compassion. Because this next lesson is hard. And he says to the young man, go and sell all that you have, and come and follow me. The young man turns away in sorrow because he had a lot. These stories are ours to carry around, and Jesus trusts that when we hear them, we'll begin to ask questions. We'll begin to understand how these stories equip us for the life that we are in, the life that has found us, the life that we are a part of. Teachers know that it is fun to give your students a chance to demonstrate that they have acquired the knowledge you have imparted. Often that's done through tests. But God does not test his people. Instead, life offers the challenge. God needs to offer no test for us. We have a friend who is a high school history teacher. And he told us once that he likes to tell the parents of his students, look, I don't learn your kids. I teach them. It's their job to learn. How is it that we synthesize what Jesus has been teaching us? What questions are elicited in us that call us back to the teacher to say, can you help me with this? I remember in seminary, one of my fellow classmates noticed things in the text that I never could see. Inevitably, when we were studying together in class, he would ask a question in relationship to something we were studying, and I thought, where was that? How did you see that? I'm looking at the same thing that you're looking, and yet that doesn't reveal itself to me. So I asked my friend Richard, how do you do that? How did you find that in there? He said, I don't know. So I decided to go to my advisor, a very wise man. Incidentally, he's the Bishop of Southern Ohio, Tom Bridenthal, and one of the candidates for um, the presiding bishop. And just as a little aside, three of the four candidates for presiding bishop I know, and I am very excited about what might happen for our church. One is our diocesan bishop, the other is Tom Bridenthal, and the other is Michael Curry. I will start with the assumption that the fourth guy is as good as the three, um, so we're in good hands with any one of them. So I went to my advisor and I said to him, can you teach me how to think like Richard? Because he knew Richard as a student, and he said, oh, yeah. And he pointed me toward a couple of literary people and a couple of philosophers and said, this is where you're going to see that way of thinking. 
Jesus teaches the masses and he teaches his disciples and life offers them the challenge to demonstrate that they have synthesized the information and have the chance to practice what they have learned. God does not test us. Now we did read from the book of Job as our first lesson this morning. That is in the first testament and it is a fictional book. It is an imagination. Job is an imagination of what it would be like if God did test us. When you read that story you see that Job is a righteous man. He cannot be touched in his righteousness and in his faithfulness. And in the story you see that everything is stripped away. What would happen? What if God did test the most righteous man? Again and again throughout this 40 chapter book, Job admits that he does not know what God is up to and that he cannot fathom God's works. But he is slowly whittled away and whittled away in his confidence. And at the very end here, chapter 38, as we read today, he decides that maybe, maybe he can take issue with what God is doing. And God reminds him that his te- a student is never above his teacher. A servant is never above his master. This fictional story of Job gives us the opportunity to enter in through our imagination of what if God tested us, because God does not test us. Life itself is the challenge. We know that even from the events of this week, from the tragedy that took place in Charleston, South Carolina. Emmanuel, African Methodist Episcopal Church. In that place, nine people were killed in a Bible study. And we know also that they have sought to carry their faith into this circumstance. More than half of those who survived the death of their loved one spoke forgiveness to the likely gunman. How do they do that? Where does their strength come from? Emmanuel means God with us. Their church's name speaks their faith. And they have the opportunity in the challenge of life to speak to the moment at hand. It seems unfathomable. Aren't we certain that the loss of a loved one will destroy us? Isn't that the thing, the one thing perhaps, that we feel will be our undoing? I'm reminded of Paul's words to the church in Corinth when he speaks about this. It's um, um, difficult to imagine, and he acknowledges that. We are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet are well-known, as dying and see we are alive, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing everything. Life is hard. Their journey is going to be hard. But they have tapped into the source of strength to help them through it because there's no way for it to not be hard. We hear in our gospel lesson today, the disciples come to Jesus with their question. Do you not care that we are perishing? Imagine the scene. The boat is out in the lake going like this. 
Jesus is downstairs in the stern asleep on the cushion. The disciples are upstairs frantically pouring water off of the edge of the boat as much as they can, holding on for dear life. I imagine at any moment one of them thinks, where is Jesus? Do I dare abandon my post to go get him? Or surely he's going to come up any minute. And yet finally someone decides to go down and wake him. What's it like in the stern? Is it pitch black? Or is there maybe one lantern there swinging to and fro? Jesus is sound asleep. And he's awakened with the question, do you not care that we are perishing? Jesus gets up off of the cushion, balancing himself as he makes his way to the ladder. You can hear the water slamming against the deck above him, people yelling to one another. He comes out and he speaks to the sea and silences it. He says to them, why are you afraid? Where is your faith? In their question to Jesus, they reveal their fear. Surely this will kill us, they say. And do you not care, they say to Jesus. Jesus says, in essence, I've been with you all along, repeated my care for you, demonstrated my care for you. How can you come to me with such a question? I wonder what question Jesus would have been willing to hear. Maybe if they'd come and woken him and said, help us. Or can you come upstairs? We need you. Maybe that would have been a demonstration of their faith, even as they cried out. God does not test us. Life is a challenge itself. But Jesus invites us to come and learn from him. He will teach us all that we need to know so that when we are faced with the challenge, we know that we are not alone. It will not destroy us. It will not overwhelm us. God is there. And God will fill in the gaps so that we can practice what we have learned, synthesize what he has taught us, demonstrate it in our own lives. He says this to us. It's accounted. It's an account in Matthew's gospel. Come unto me, Jesus says. Come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and learn from me. For I am meek and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We are invited to be students of the master. The master teacher comes and invites us to sit, teaching us all that we need to know, giving us the opportunity to ask our questions. Because life is the challenge. May we respond to Jesus' invitation, knowing that he seeks to equip us fully, to live freely in him, so that we might demonstrate to the world the wholeness, the joy, and the freedom found in Christ. Amen.